Okay. First off, Lee, did I miss any blanks? <laughs> she doesn't think so. Okay. Um, okay. Any anyone want any blanks from here? I mean, we covered, we galloped, um, and I got fifteen chapters next week. But because they're the most recent, I'm trusting they'll be the most in your mind. So actually, we should be able to move more quickly. I mean, once we get to the passion and Jesus' conflicts in the temple and the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's where we've been the last couple of months, and so hopefully we can move quickly there. Whereas I took more time in the first nine chapters because that was three years ago. You know? um, yes, Lee. Mission. You got it. So, okay. Any other questions from nine chapters of Luke? Microphones are standing by. Was that a, was that a, I don't know, I don't know either. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I got some things we can talk about if, if, but go, go ask your, ask, go. I was just wondering in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, he goes back all the way to Adam, whereas in Matthew, he just goes back to David. Is there yeah. a deeper meaning behind that? Well, it's just their intent and purpose. Um, Matthew is intent primarily on demonstrating that Jesus is the direct descendant of David and therefore the rightful claim to the Davidic throne. So he only needs to go back to David. Luke is emphasizing the one of one of the things we'll cover when I one of the themes I want to cover is okay, what other things are going on. And Luke, more than any of the gospels, emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. It's the only gospel where we get a learning, growing Jesus. And so linking him all the way back so that Jesus fully fits into the human race. He, he links all the way back in descent to Adam. He, he really is one of us. He really is human. That's, I believe, the, uh, the purpose of linking back to Adam, is, is to show all the way from the beginning, this is a descendant of the man and the woman in the garden. Down which then makes him potential savior for every descendant of the man and the woman in the garden down. I, I think that's the, the rationale behind the difference in the uh, genealogy and how far back they go. Whereas Matthew's just, not just, Matthew's primarily concerned with legal claim to the throne. Yeah. Because he isn't Joseph's seed, right? Um, his, yeah, but as they adopted son, he's a legal heir. Through Mary, he gets... He gets uh, genetic descent, which is important because in Second Samuel, the Davidic covenant, God's emphatic, from your own body, I will raise up someone after you, and I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. And so you, it's not enough to be the adopted son of Joseph to fulfill that prophecy. He has to also be the genetic descent of, oh, she's got more she wants to say. Okay. No, I just want to say it yeah. once again. People who deny that there were actual Adam and Eve, that that was just mythology right. to explain, try and explain something to us, that would, again, he yeah. references Adam. So what do you do with this? Is Luke just lying? No, again and again, the New Testament treats the events of the Old Testament histories as absolutely factual, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and... And Paul, in particular, in uh, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, will do a, a, an extended, just as the first Adam, so the second, just as Adam, so Christ. If Adam becomes a myth, it seems really hard not to see how that's going to unravel and make Jesus a myth. So, so yeah, it, it's an attempt to accommodate uh, the wisdom of the age. It's an attempt to not look like we're, you know, creationists. Oh, no. No, that's... 
you know, and so there's a real, you, you got to have a real Adam. And, and honestly, there are um, people who believe in an old earth who would freely admit that. I got a chance to talk to, uh, no, no, but I mean, they do less, it's less, it's less critical at that point. It's still an issue of truth in what the Bible says, but like Tim Keller, I got a chance to chat with him once. And because I know he believes in an old earth and he believes basically God created the earth. And then, um, but he emphatically said, I believe there's a real Adam, a real Eve and a real garden God placed there. He just believes the earth's old and there's evolutionary processes leading up to that. And, and, uh, but he, he recognizes you can't not have a real Adam and, and make sense of the Bible story. So, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Any other questions? Nine chapters of Luke. No, Lee's got one. Here we go. As I'm looking at the uh, outline at the end of the first part of, of two, where it says, uh, who is he and he's the prophet and the Lord. And then the next part goes on to say, blinding eyes. Is in between that two little places is when he could have been actually received as the savior of Israel and stuff? Oh, I think even right up to the very end. I, some people even argue even into the early book of Acts. Peter, go to Acts 3. Whether or not Peter is right in doing it, he could be in error. I mean, Peter makes mistakes. Although Peter, after the sermon at Pentecost, Peter, after the Holy Spirit coming upon him, is much harder to argue is stupid. But Paul is to rebuke him in Galatians. He tells about that. So, But Peter sure thinks he's offering the kingdom to Israel in Acts 3. I sure think Peter thinks he's doing that. Um, and so it, it sure looks as though even there, Peter thinks it might not be too late for Israel to repent. I mean, think how exciting Acts 2 is when thousands turn. Maybe, maybe now they're going to get it. Maybe now. Um, so Acts 3, um, starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together. This is the guy Peter healed by his shadow going over him. You know, gold and silver I have not, but what I have I give you get up and walk. Um, and Peter saw it, he addressed the people, verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So Peter's putting a special blame on the Jews, not the Romans. He's highlighting, but Pilate was going to let him go. You did this. And the Romans did it too, but particularly you did this. Um, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouths of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now that sounds an awful lot like what Peter asked Jesus about at Acts 1. Will you at this time, verse 6, restore the kingdom to Israel? So I think... Peter's saying, there's even a chance now, 
if you guys will repent and turn back, that, that maybe God will just send Jesus back and we'll kick right back into that kingdom program. Um, so it's, it's the, the real decisive decision seems to when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Um, so I think, I think the, uh, the entrance of the second theme is as the Pharisees have shown up and they really leave the stage for a bit, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem is going to do exactly, in fact, these are things I had to cut out. Go to Luke uh, 1, I believe. There's so much in the prophetic utterances of Zechariah and others, but Simeon, Luke 2, sorry, Simeon in the temple. Simeon in the temple predicts what Jesus will do and it's that double edge right there. Um, so, yeah, verse, verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And so if you think of Jesus as light and heat, light and heat melts wax and it hardens clay. And Jesus' presence will do one of those two. Um, So that normal, everyday, common, nice folk, nice are going to cry out, we have no king but Caesar, away with him, crucify, crucify, crucify. That it wouldn't normally be doing that. But he's going to so polarize, and he's going to so, he's going to force you to pick a side. And for those who are on the other side, they're going to get hardened real fast. They're going to get solidified real quickly. Um, that's, that's what he's doing. I, the reason I want to connect it to Psalm 115 is that it's just. It's, like if you, it's kind of like if you close your eyes willfully long enough, maybe you will go blind. Stick your ears, stick your fingers in your ears long enough. Maybe God will just strike you deaf. You know, that's the picture. These people are beginning to. Some of them are beginning to willfully, because what's going to happen next after he starts going up is they're going to start blaming his work on Satan. And part of Jesus' answer is, you know perfectly well that I'm not doing this, but you're just saying that because it's all you can say. People that do that go blind and get deaf real fast. That's that's the uh, the rationale. Um, and so Jesus is doing that as well. He's exposing Israel's sin. Before he showed up, they wouldn't have looked this wicked. They, they were, right, in their hearts. But by his presence, we're seeing why they're worthy of being cut off from the vine for a time. We're seeing why um, they would do this. His presence brings that to light because he's also doing that hardening, blinding ministry, even while he's preaching gospel to the poor and to the oppressed and the captives and the blind. So he's, he's, he's accomplishing both ministry. I just, think, I just think the parallelism of citing the passage in Isaiah, applying it to himself right at the beginning of a new sort of section of Luke, bringing the second deeper edge in is really cool and explaining it. It helps explain the complexity of Jesus. He, there is truth to the picture of just Jesus welcoming and Jesus coming to me. That's part of the first... Isaiah 61 ministry, but there's a harsher Jesus who makes a whip and who says some really rough things to the Pharisees. You, you, full of dead men's bones, you whitewashed tombs. I mean, he's he's got some hard things to say to them, and that's more coming out of that second blinding aspect of his ministry. And, and we can tend to focus on one or the other, and it's a much more complex and full picture of his ministry. 
uh, as he's preaching. I mean, because Jesus is coming, he's to be a preacher, he's to be a prophet, and he's going to die on a cross and be a, a substitute. But in the early chapters, he's primarily preaching and calling Israel to repentance and welcoming those who do. So, um, yeah. Follow up on that or any further thoughts with that? Seriously, guys, nine chapters, no questions. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, we skipped over almost entirely. I flew through the birth announcements. There's a lot of similarities to Hannah and Samuel's birth. Um, a lot of similarities. Especially if you read the Magnificat, Mary's prayer of praise, and Hannah's prayer of praise in, in 1 Samuel 2. There's a, Mary is clearly... Um, bouncing off of, riffing off of, uh, she's clearly aware of and using in many respects to fashion her praise. Um, and this is part more of the, when I talk about the prophetic stamp, like it's, there's similar things happening. If you're aware of the Old Testament and how these great prophets like Samuel, who's the last great judge and prophet of Israel, um, if you're aware of how they came into life, because remember, Hannah is one of two wives of Elkanah. The other wife has kids. She doesn't, and she goes up, and she's praying and crying. And Eli comes out, and he thinks she's drunk. And he says, how long will you go on in your drunkenness? And she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring out my heart. And he says, okay, may the Lord give you the petition you request. And she goes home, and she gets pregnant, and she dedicates the child to the Lord. And that child is Samuel, who will uh, become the last great judge and prophet in Israel. That's the story. And so you've got similarities with um, John the Baptist and his birth and Mary. So let's just compare Hannah's prayer with Mary's Magnificat. You'll see what I mean. Go to, go to 1 Samuel 2. There's so much. I mean, I, I find intertextuality, the, the different passages referencing or interacting with each other, so fascinating. And it really helps... Um, Nothing convinces me more of the divine origin of Scripture than those types of things because the interconnection is the harmonization, the way they, they make a, a whole um, unbroken tapestry is so fascinating. So chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer of praise and thanksgiving um, after having Samuel. And what you're going to see, which is what Mary's going to pick up, is this lifting up and casting down motif, the grand reversal. So Hannah's going to celebrate the grand reversal, and then Mary's going to do the same thing. And if we read them back to back, hopefully you'll see how much they, there's interplay. So, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. So there's a reversal. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. 
The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor. The Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. I don't know where Hannah got that from, but that is very insightful. There's no king yet in Israel. Um, Deuteronomy talks of a future day. But, I mean, this is, these people know their Bibles. Hannah bursts out in spontaneous praise and prayer and links king and Messiah here, which doesn't really happen. I mean, I had missed this, and so I thought the first time they were linked was Psalm 2, which David writes. Nope. Hannah, way ahead of him. Way ahead of him. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So now go to Luke 2. Or maybe 1, I forget. 1. Go to Luke 1. It's called the Magnificat because in Latin... The first word is Magnificat. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church used the Latin Vulgate from the 4th century till sometime in the 16th or 17th, actually till the 1950s technically, right? That's when Vatican II happened and they took the Mass out of Latin. Okay. Um, And so that's where it gets the name Magnificat. So chapter 1, verse 46. Mary is with her cousin, um, Elizabeth, they them together. Baby John the Baptist in utero. By the way, the first person to recognize and respond to Jesus is an unborn child. That's striking. An unborn child capable of morally significant action. Very interesting. Baby leaps for joy. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked at the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It is quite biblical to speak of Mary as blessed. Um, we don't want to so counterswing away from Mary worship that you know we're, we're afraid. She's the one saying it right here in Scripture. All generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The, the key difference we need to keep with Mary is Mary is a recipient of grace and blessing, not a source. She is most blessed. She doesn't bless. She isn't a fountain of grace and blessing. She's a recipient, but a mighty one. Um, for all, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. There's that reversal. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months. So anyone reading this who knows her Old Testament is going to hear echoes of Hannah's prayer. And I'll say, yeah, this is similar. That what God is doing here is similar to things he's done in the past. It's going to remind us of the birth of Samuel. It's going to remind us of, of these barren women who God has shown mercy on, um, like Sarah and Leah and Hannah. 
um, in the Old Testament. There's, there's a, it's striking how many, how common that theme is, you know, um, for God raising up very, very unique people from those situations as a way of showing his care. Yes, Lee. Microphone. Uh, the five people who listen to the podcast want to hear what you have to say. Oh, it might be more today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, commenting on H- Hannah's uh, knowledge of Scripture, the way she speaks, and also Mary's, did back in the olden days, did they educate the boy children and the girl children together? I mean, how did everybody go to the temple, or were there separations? Everyone went to the synagogues. No, everyone went to the synagogues. And okay. everyone would gather to hear, hear the Scripture. In fact... The the old the new the Old Testament is incredibly, um, incredibly uh, clear on this. Let me pull it up on that thing. I got notes um, on it. any notions that only the men. Now in the temple there are courts for the men and the women and children, but all young and old, including very young, are to come and hear the word of God. And these people. Uh, in a oral culture, even though there is written with, before the printing press, you're largely dealing with an oral culture. Memorization was huge. Um, we don't we don't value that anymore. We think of it as a party f- trick. But when Kings talks about First Kings talks about Solomon had on his lips three thousand proverbs. You're supposed to go, wow, what a wise man. I mean, we can just Google stuff now, but Solomon just had at his fingertips three th- because the way you'd adjudicate justice is you would um, bring and you'd hear the case, and then the, the king or the judge would bring forth some proverbs and, wiz- and ev- things that are meant to be self-evidently true. That's the nature of proverbs are, you don't have to take my word for it. Once you explain it, oh, of course. He brings that out, and then based on these truisms, he's going to give a judgment, and everyone present can see that justice is done. It's not that they have, you know, the type of codes that we have. I mean, yeah, the law has some prescriptions, but it doesn't cover every single possible scenario. And so you need wisdom. And so in an oral culture, memory's huge. For instance, the number of the Psalms are written um, in acrostic fashion. So the equivalent in English of the first line beginning with A, then B, then C. The only purpose for that is to help with memorization. And so here's an entire culture that has been developing from childhood the ability to, to memorize and then gathering every Sabbath and hearing the scriptures read. And we saw Jesus, the scroll was given to him, he stood up and he read it. And so every, every Sabbath, you're hearing the scripture read and you're, you're remembering it. And these, these people were saturated. It's estimated that most Pharisees had memorized the entire Old Testament as well as additional material about twice as long because they had the Talmud and they had the uh, commentaries. Yeah, the, the what? Okay, yeah. They have these rabbinic commentaries memorized as well. I mean, these guys knew the Bible inside and out in one sense. I mean, then they missed the Messiah, but they, they knew their Bibles inside and out. Um, okay, well, let hmm. me catch you while you're taking a drink. <laughs> yeah. So... I know in the the temple they had the temple the Gentiles or the Gentiles court and the women's court and yes. the special of the temple, but then all the little I'm assuming villages had a synagogue wherever there would be like ten yes. ten men yeah. to form a synagogue, yeah. and then did they then keep the ladies separate or I don't believe so. Okay, because I'm thinking how they do it now at synagogues. Well, I think let me, that I don't I I don't know I don't know 
what they did. The development of the synagogues was something that came from Judas Maccabee and the, and the reform of the uh, Pharisees. I can tell you what the Old Testament describes. Let me just, let's go to Deuteronomy 11. So I can tell you what they should have done. I can't tell you what they did do because I simply don't know. I can tell you what they should have done is um, Deuteronomy 11. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why um, I, I think it's great when children are able to, as young as they're able to, to sit in the worship service. Um, not, not all kids are going to be able to do that. They're going to get self-disciplined at different ages. But as soon as they are able to, I'm, I'm a huge fan of having them be part of the corporate gathering. Um, is because of passages like Deuteronomy 11. Let me get there myself. Um, 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Go to Deuteronomy 31, 12 to 13. That doesn't necessarily speak of corporate worship. That just keeps us biblical instruction. So the parents are to be memorizing what they're hearing and then speaking them to the kids. So you're not just getting it on Sabbath. You're supposed to be getting it all day, every day, and twice on Saturday. Um, so Deuteronomy 31, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and send them off the children's church. No, assemble the men, women, and little ones, the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn the fear of the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Go to Joshua 8. Joshua 8, 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Um, so we, we have a pattern of this word is for men, the women, the little ones, and the sojourners, the Canaanites who have bound themselves to the Lord. Um, then in Second Chronicles, I won't have you turn here yet, Second Chronicles 20, 13, meanwhile all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So little ones are younger than children because they're a separate category, unless we're just talking about we folk, you know. No, we're talking about really young people. So, I mean, that's even more emphatic because now you've got men, women, children, and little ones. And they're all gathered to hear the word. Um, Nehemiah 8.2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Which is another good line of demarcation. I mean, fine. If the kid... I think it's great even for kids who can't understand to learn the pattern of our family gathers. So again, as soon as my kids are able to sit quietly through the service and we're working on that... Um, we try to do that because even though Talitha isn't going to get anything from this, she's learning the pattern of our family gathers and we sit and this is important and it's serious. So that's, that's part of my thinking there. But then turn to Ephesians. Oh, 2 Chronicles 20.13 and then Ezra 8.2. See, I was tell Jake, this is one of those examples. 
talking to Jake, my strengths and my weaknesses, I rabbit trail like nobody's business. So I'll be working on a sermon and something will strike me. Like, That's interesting. And then I'll go, but this is one of those rabbit trails. I'm like, oh, there's little children. I'm like, I wonder where else little children are. So I spent 45 minutes and I wrote down the references. And now today it pays off, right? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. And before I go to 6, I'm just going to read the opening greeting so you know who he's addressing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, chapter 1, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus. He's writing the church in Ephesus. And in writing the church at Ephesus, he addresses, first word, 6-1. He expects when the church gathers and his letter is read publicly to them, there's children who are directly spoken to. It's not tell your children. Children. It assumes they're there. So that, that would be, um, and I, and I want to give another piece to this too, that would be why I think children um, should be not cut off and separated. There's a whole other bunch of reasons why I think that. Let me flip to the other side though. There is absolutely a biblical value. If you go to here into 1 Corinthians 14, I know I'm on a rabbit trail, but this is cool. I'm cool with it. That's fine. I want this. I'm intentionally doing this rabbit trail. 1 Corinthians 14. There's equally, however, a value on order and the ability to understand what's going on. And so, whereas I strongly believe it's good for children to be in the service and not separated off to their own um, worship service, I also strongly believe they shouldn't be a huge distraction um, as well. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about tongues, but I think the principle holds true regardless. Um, Says, where does he say it? The trumpet, the bit about the trumpet. Um, eight. Okay, good. If I, if the bugle gives an, okay, let's go back to six. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless, lifeless, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute and the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said if you'll be speaking into the air? And I think that holds true, not just from the confusion that's introduced in speaking in foreign languages, but if there's such a cacophony going on that whoever's speaking can't be heard, it is equally without use or merit. And so there's a biblical value to being understood. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a biblical value to absolute silence, but certainly anything that would make it so you can't hear is bad, right? So it's not just saying the kids need to be here and deal with it. So I think the happy solution is parents should be endeavoring, and different kids are going to get at different times, to be training their children to be able to be part of the service. I think that's the ideal. Um, anyway, it, any questions on that? But I... Oh, Dean wants to go. Microphone to Dean. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, no, no, and I'll add one further pragmatic reason why I think it's bad is this, is that um, what we've seen happen a lot as the whole youth ministry um, motif took off in the last 30 or 40 years, not that the youth ministry is necessarily bad, but more and more what youth ministry is doing is segregating the youth. And so they had their, basically their own entire church experience. They sang their own songs. They had their own pastor. They had their own building. They had their own everything. 
And guess what? They never actually were integrated into the church. And when they break out of youth group, go off to college, they disappear because there is no body that they were ever joined to because they're almost entirely segregated out of it. Um, so that, that's a practical implication, I think, of why. Again, I, we have Daniel doing stuff with the youth. I don't think that's wrong. But the primary gathering that we have together, as much as possible, should be everybody, um, as much as possible. Dean has a rabbit trail. Well, as I was, you were talking earlier, I was doing some research on my Bible app. It's the ESV. Mm. And an interesting thing I noticed that in a search of synagogue, it only shows up in the New Testament, but temple shows up in both old and new. Yeah. Is there a difference between yes. the two? Okay. Yes. Okay. So God only instituted the temple. First, he has the tent of meeting with Moses. These are the things God said to do. Tent of meeting becomes the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple, if you will. And then um, the, the tabernacle gets set up in Shiloh. And then David, this is actually the, the impetus for the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, David says, I've got this great house that I live in. God's ark resides in a tent. Lord, let me make a house for you. And Nathan thinks it's a great idea. And God says, no, David, you're not going to be the one to build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. So God's pleased with David's intent, but Solomon ultimately builds the temple. The synagogues were, okay, so in the intertestamental period between um, Malachi and Matthew, the 400 years, there is a uh, revolt by Judas Maccabee, um, and there's a reformation that takes place between, in Israel, as, and it starts out very, very, very fine. The Pharisaic movement was the fundamentalist back to the Bible movement. Get the Ten Commandments back in our schools movement. It was the prayer in school. I mean, basically, the Pharisaic movement started. It was, it was lay level. These are not um, rich people. We have forsaken God. God has judged us and put us under foreign oppression. Therefore, we need to get back to the law. We need to get back to keeping the scripture. We need to get back to that. that it's a Reformation movement. So the Pharisees began setting up synagogues in every town to teach the law and read the law. So that's primarily what the synagogue is, a place to go and hear the law read. An individual, probably unless they were very rich, couldn't own a Torah, but a community might. right? Or they could have a scroll of Isaiah or something. And that's what they set up. It started out great. You know, it's a Bible movement. Um, and so it was picking up traction, and the Pharisees were actually starting to get a level of respect and a level of, of power in the culture. But they are not the, – the, the, the priests and the, uh, the Sadducees owned the temple, and the temple had money because there's all this trade going on, because it's a whole lot easier to buy your animals to slaughter at the temple than to travel from up north down south. So there's this marketplace that Jesus turns over, and the money changes. There's so much cash exchanging hands that you got people who've, their whole job is trading money from the different coinage of the realm. So, well, and taxes. Oh, yeah. So they're paying taxes. They're buying animals. There's cash. And so it's a very lucrative business to be controlling the temple. The, the, the Sadducees rule the temple, which is why the Pharisees leave the stage once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and he's dealing with the Sadducees primarily and the priests. So there's only one authorized place for, for worship and for sacrifice, and that's the temple. But the, the synagogues, I think, are completely in keeping with the law. They're nothing unbiblical about them. They're not commanded by the law, but they become Bible schools or Bible reading and hearing 
places um, in the communities, but they rose up in the 400 years in between the close of the Old Testament. And so they're in place, well-established when the New Testament starts, and they're not here yet at the close of the Old Testament. So no, they would be nowhere in the Old Testament. Um, and, they're, and they're closely tied to the community. In John 10, the man who was born blind, who, uh, who confesses Christ, they de-synagogued him. I think John invents a word. Um, and it's clearly meant to mean more. They kick him out of the synagogue, and they're kicking him out of the community. I mean, it's, it's basically similar to how the mosque functions today in Islam. The community and the mosque are closely tied together. So you can't really leave the mosque without also, to some extent, leaving the, the community. So th- that's as best as I understand the synagogues. But now the temple alone is where you can offer sacrifice. God's very explicit on that. Um, but we get even some insight in Luke uh, 4. He went in, there was a scroll, so we get that there's regular customary readings of Scripture, and that anyone could do it because Jesus is not a recognized rabbi. Um, he, he has no uh, recognized t- title or, or anything at this point. So he's just a guy from Nazareth who gets the turn reading the scroll. So that's some insight in what's going on in there. I'm sure prayers are offered up as well. But there would not be any sacrifice or anything like that. That's anyone to add to the synagogues from that? That's my best. Oh, it says here 586 BC. It was instituted for the Jews who were in exile because there was nowhere for them to worship and get education. And even if you think of the boys when they turned 13, don't they go and read? That, again, is, is extra-biblical. It's entirely likely yeah, true. Yeah. Nothing God said to do. But it's also likely why, um, why Luke gives the account of Jesus when he's 12. Because it would be his last turn going to the temple before he could enter the court of men, before he'd be a man in his own right. This is the last look at young boy Jesus. He's 12 years old because at 13 he'd be bar mitzvahed. Most likely. Scripture carries no record of this, but what we know of Jewish culture now and the records, that was what likely would have happened. So that's probably why Luke picks 12 years old. And what we're meant to see, this, this will bring us back to Luke. Um, I think the point, go to Luke 2. It's a good, bring our rabbit trail back home to Luke again. Talked about how Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and this will show up in, in, in a future week or two when we deal with some of the themes of Luke. But one of the things we can be uncomfortable with is the notion of Jesus learning. Jesus learning, which Luke is emphatic, he does. And he doesn't know things, he doesn't know who touched him. And unless you want to say this is all theater, when the woman touches him, and Jesus knew he was touched, but he didn't know who, he said, Who touched me? Um, unless you want to say this is all theater, Jesus is not functionally omniscient in the Gospels. Uh, what I mean is he never gives up divine attributes. He never is less than God. But he certainly doesn't act like God acts in all times and all places. By which I mean God says, I'm God, I neither tire nor sleep. Jesus tired and Jesus slept. That's not like God. I don't mean he's doing anything wicked not like God. But he's, he gets tired and he goes to sleep. Um, and so there are, seem to be many divine attributes that Jesus is not functioning in in the Gospels. And one of them is omniscience. He is not functionally omniscient. Um, which then, if you start raveling, unraveling, I mean, and if you deny that, then you're going to have stories like the Roman Catholic Church has of Jesus, like still with the umbilical cord attached, 
speaking and preaching to the people gathered. And there's pictures you can find of that because, you know, that you're going to have to end up with that. So that means things like Jesus had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to write. He had to learn all these things. Which then means, if you follow that rabbit trail even further, there's a point in Jesus' childhood where he had to come to the realization of who he was. Because self-awareness and those types of things aren't generally viewed as attributes that zygotes have. So just stop and think. Jesus had to come to the conclusion, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, on a particular day in his study of the Old Testament. That's just crazy. And I think the point in Luke 2 is, so, okay, so back to, back to literature structure. When you get what's called an inclusio, an inclusio can happen in any type of writing. It, can, it happens in the Bible a fair bit. You've got a bookend. You've got an author letting you know you're dealing with a chunk because he begins and ends it with very similar language. So there's already one inclusio in Jesus presented in the temple. In, think of it like bookmark, bookends. So in 22... When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, let me read about Jesus going to the temple and, and Simeon picks him up and Anna blesses him. And then it ends in 39. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. So they went up to perform everything according to the law. And then after they performed everything according to the law, they went home. And so that helps us get a picture when you see a inclusio, what is the main topic we're going to see in this text? So I would expect to see in that chunk between 22 and 39, people doing everything according to the law which is exactly what we see. 40 begins a new inclusio that goes to 52. So look at 40 and 52 and how similar they are. And the child grew strong, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when Jesus is lost at the temple, that's the, that's the story. And Mary had to feel, I'm sure, pretty embarrassed. She lost the Messiah. Um, what I'd expect to see at the center of this is Jesus learning and growing, right? And that's key then to understand what's going on because when Jesus is meeting and sitting um, with the teachers in the temple, he's doing one of two things. He is either teaching them, which I've heard people try to say is this child teaching them, or he's learning from them. And I think the bookends tells us which way to take this. Jesus' posture indicates this. He's sitting. It's a sign of respect. You sit under a teacher. So like when the people come to Ezekiel about the Kabar River in Ezekiel 14, they sit at his feet. Jesus is sitting. And what are we told he's doing? We're told in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. That sounds like a student learning. Now, he's doing this perfectly, mind you, but he's learning. I, I think the logic is something like this. This is Jesus' potentially first time to get access to Israel's best teachers. Now, as much as we know much of Israel's religion is apostate, there are good guys like um, Simeon and Anna and people who are faithful. And Jesus has access to them now. Jesus can sit at their feet and ask them questions and speed up his study of the scripture. He's doing this perfectly. He's not adopting any wrong thinking. And he's asking them questions. He's showing great insight, but he's growing in his mastery of the text. And that's why I think it's so significant that when Mary comes in, verse 48, right? Okay, so 47, all who heard him were amazed. So what do we get? This kid is years, light years ahead of the other kids and where they're at with his questions. And this is a brilliant child. 
brilliant 12-year-old asking deep and insightful questions, but still learning from the teachers of Israel in the temple. And he's been doing it for three days straight. So what do you get? This child, this young boy is devouring his Torah. He is just in it and asking questions and thinking. It's going to help us explain Jesus' mastery when he's 33 and he shows up to be baptized by John, because at that point, there's no more learning. He is the master of Scripture. He's not that here. He's learning. But what is interesting is Mary says, why have you treated us so? Verse 48, your father and I have been searching for you. Jesus takes that phrase, your father, and he makes that the hinge point, right, with a pretty slight rebuke. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be about my father's house? Which means then, some point prior to this, so by the time Jesus was 12, possibly much earlier, he now knows who he is. I don't know when he learned who he is. I don't think he came into the world knowing who he is. As in, you know, my, my newborn child is, doesn't know who they are, right? Um, so Jesus, in studying the Old Testament, has now come to the realization he knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He knows what his mission is. He's 12. I think that's what's going on here. Um, and that, again, is the emphasis on Jesus' humanity that Luke is making. No other gospel gives us this picture, and it's fascinating for what we get out of it. Uh, and the bookends help us figure out what the point is. This is Jesus growing, increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's what we're seeing here. Um, and none of the gospels give that type of insight into the humanity of Christ that I'm aware of. So um, we're at time. God bless you. Have a great day. Drive home safely.